John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 210.NU2653, certificate number 6798. Checkerboarding. So if you fly over the country, the middle of the country, on an airplane. It's a pretty big if. I'm not doing that. If you are one of these coastal elites <laughs> uh, who look at America as as the two distinct coasts and then the flyover 48 states. flyover states. Yeah. Not me. I drive across. I stop at every truck stop and muffler shop. Here, here. I'm a man of the people, John. I know you are. I know you are. But if you are lucky enough <clears throat> to have ever been on an airplane across the United States and look down, the way the country is divided is pretty clear from the air. It's a giant checkerboard system of land that you can distinguish from 30,000 feet. It squares as just far as the eye can see. Endless squares. And I like when the squares have circles inscribed in them because of that, whatever that rotary irrigation thing is. Yeah. Circles, circles within squares and half circles within squares. It really looks a lot like, it looks more like aliens did it when they have those. Yeah. It is like kind of the original crop circle, right? But it's a circle of crops rather than a circle carved out of crops. It's like the flying saucer fleet lowered some kind of screen door on America with, <laughs> with squares that were a mile on a side or six miles on a side or whatever. And just like carved us into little blocks of cheese. Yeah, and those blocks are, are visible from high up because often the borders between those squares are where the road was laid. Uh, crops certainly change from square to square because those... Obviously, the divisions of those squares is how land was surveyed and apportioned in the American West. I'm already a little disappointed that checkerboarding is some kind of surveyor-related thing and not an enhanced interrogation technique. Hmm, right. I feel like we should be trying checkerboarding on our enemies. <laughs> Instead of waterboarding them? I, yeah, I don't know what that... You get some irascible old man from a barbershop just to whack the prisoners with a checkerboard, I think. Well, that or using the barbershop theory, you could uh, shave checkerboards into the sides of their heads just like Cindy Lauper, and then they would go back to their villages and die of humiliation. Did she have checkerboards in her in her in the sides of her hair? Well, I'm not sure whether Cindy Lauper pioneered that, but... Certainly that was a thing for a while. If you were going to shave the sides of your head, then you would then you would shave even sure. deeper the checkerboard. Pattern. I'm picturing people with fades. You can put all kinds of weird borders yeah. in your head. But some people put the Ralston Purina logo. Yeah, that's right. It's a pretty <laughs> uh 
It's like pretty hot when you see it, especially if the person has red hair like Cindy Lauper. Mm. Mm. But no, this was actually uh, being done not to redheads, but to <laughs> I was gonna say I was gonna say Redskins, but we don't say Redskins. No, anymore. we don't. It was being done to the American West. It was being done to the. It was a way of surveying and cataloging the land of the American West, east of the Appalachians. Um, oh wow! So when you say West, it's really. Most it's, of the country. It's everything. During the colonial period and during sort of the uh, tenure of President Jefferson, there was all this curiosity about what lay west and how- I've, I've heard some of Jefferson's weird theories. Like he thought there'd be mountains of salt, you know, because he was an amateur scientist. Right. He thought there might be uh, an entrance to like uh, some kind of hollow earth. You know, even Jefferson thought it could be, who knows what it could be. The, you know, the sky was the limit for these people. Well, and people were searching for the Northwest Passage, um, uh, like a ship route through the North American continent right. uh, until fairly late. That was one of the reasons he sent Lewis and Clark to the West to see if, going up the Missouri River, they could arrive at some uh, way to reach the Pacific Ocean. I was reading about there is uh, somewhere on the Continental Divide, there's both a lake and I think a stream that does empty into, in both, into both oceans, like from one end of the lake. I think it's uh, Isa Lake in Yellowstone. The west end oddly drains into the, eventually into the Missouri and the Mississippi, whereas the east end eventually drains into the Snake, Columbia. Shouldn't it be the Pacific. opposite? Yes, but the Continental Divide... It's very hard to show wow. on a podcast. I'm gesticulating wildly Yes, you really here. are. The Continental Divide takes a horizontal east-west turn there. Right. And the lake is runs that way. And so they just, it's just, it's like how the Panama Canal. Right. The west end actually goes into the Atlantic and vice versa. What a switcheroo. Isn't that crazy? So there is a Northwest Passage if you're like a little trout. Right. If, you know. <laughs> like a turtle. Somehow that is the one lake that connects the, the western waterways with the eastern ones. Well, that sounds like a topic for uh, an episode of Omnibus. Maybe we can revisit that lake at a few, in a future time. What you're saying is you'd like me to stop talking about this thing so, you no, wish, no. so we can go back to talking about No, I love it. I think, I think we should make it a policy of this show that we go back and, and basically revisit all the things that we talk about as uh, asides. Well, since we're speaking to people that have the full... Volume. Presumably, we've been able to record thousands of these before our untimely deaths. Uh, you could just stop listening to this right now and, no, and no, no, thumb no. through your volume and find the one about Isa Lake. I feel like it's much different that they have downloaded all of them into their supercrania ah. and they're able to access any, it's like a constellation to them or a web of information. So they have it all at hand. That would be great. I mean, and they're probably some kind of hive mind. They're, they're right. giant bumblebees or corals or whatever. Obviously. So, so different parts of the hive are right now listening to an episode about this lake in Yellowstone that you and I have not even recorded yet. Oh my God. What a world. Don't talk to me about time travel, but do talk to me about surveying in the American West. Tell me more, John. Uh, so Jefferson set up this system called the, the Public Land Survey System, and it was codified in the Land Act of 1796. Oh, wow. And it stipulated, that's right, all Going the way all back. All the way back. It stipulated that everything west of the colonial states would be surveyed according to a, a checkerboard that was uh, six miles per side, uh, squares that were 36 square miles. It's a grid, and it essentially goes to the Pacific. To the Pacific. And it, it had to incorporate, as, as time went on, it had to incorporate some of the ways that California and Texas were already surveyed by the Spanish government I see. at the time. It had to incorporate the way that Florida was 
surveyed by the Spanish. Native peoples, they weren't so worried about. Well, if the Spanish had their own lines, we'd be like, well, okay. That's right. And uh, and Native peoples were not thrilled about this as time went on. I think initially... <laughs> did it turn out there was a downside <laughs> for them? Initially, there were just lines drawn in uh, on maps and in people's imaginations. Mm-hmm. But as time went on, this became a real uh, a bone of contention, let's say. Sure, because I assume the idea is not just, here's how we're going to... Um, record distances and, and latitudes on maps. It was also like, here are different parcels we could do different things with and, and give away even, right? Right. Well, so early on, the, the American West was terra incognita and it was... Terra nullius? No, it was not terra nullius, but it was... At ter- one point it was. <laughs> it but was. after Jefferson draws his grid, now it's terra uh, squarius. Well, and, and even then it was understood that, you know, there were trees there. It's not like... Uh, and Native Americans, it wasn't thought of as completely... It wasn't like the Kalahari Desert. And there were claims to some of this... You know, the Louisiana Purchase was obviously French before it was American. It, it wasn't a, a virgin continent by the time Jefferson is drawing on it. Right. And the Louisiana Purchase is part of what inspired this. Mm-hmm. Like, we had suddenly all this new territory and we needed to understand it better. So this grid of 36 by 36 square miles was imposed across this great land of for, ours. For satanic reasons, to put, to put many sixes on the map. That's right. Six plus six plus six plus six. Jefferson pleasing his eldritch gods. All the way to the Pacific Ocean. And if you look down from airplanes, you will, appar- you will occasionally see where the grid shifts just slightly. So that uh, if you're driving on a country road in Iowa or Montana, sometimes that country road will take a little jag to the right and go up a distance and then jag to the left. And that's visible from an airplane from 30 to 40,000 feet. But not by the surveyor 200 years ago doing the best he could? Is that? Well, no. In fact, the jag of these squares was to compensate for the curvature of the earth. Oh, wow. Because you can't just impose a grid all the way from the east to the west. Now, flat earthers are going to argue this, but round earthers will acknowledge that you're, you're going to have to make some compensation for, for curvature. And they did it by just these pretty small shifts. Um, in, in a recent entry, you said that, um, you know, one of the benefits of doing a podcast for the future is you, you know that objectivism doesn't exist anymore. Right. And I assume that is also true of flat eartherism, but it's a huge fad in our time for right. some reason. And it may be, it may be that future protozoa are like, what? The earth isn't flat? We live in a time when you cannot tell faux ironic ignorance from real ignorance. It's true, Because right? they're, they're both extremely plausible. You're trying to figure out like how many of these flat earthers are doing this as a joke and it's almost impossible to tell because what is a joke anymore? Right. They won't say this is a bit. Like if <laughs> right. they say this is a bit, the bit ends. It's, it's a paradox of yeah. bits. Yeah. So of course they will say, no, I'm dead serious about this crazy thing. But every Everything seems like a bit these days, like things that formerly would have been completely hilarious are now like, no, that's actually the way that the State Department's run. <laughs> um, so let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, and we are now in the 1850s and the railroads are burgeoning in the East. And it's understood that we're going to, well, that it's important to build a transcontinental railroad. Uh, This is a major way of uh, transporting goods and services. But more importantly, at this point in time, if you live in Boston and you want to go to San Francisco where the gold is and where the, you know, where the action is, this is the boomtown, you have to go all the way down around South America. There is no Panama Canal at this time. It's quicker to take a boat around Cape Horn than it is to try to take a 
a wagon stagecoach or yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, and uh, this is a time when taking a stagecoach is still very dangerous. They're, and very bumpy. I feel like Westerns really underrate the kind of motion sickness people must have had. Very bumpy. You can only carry what you can carry, and uh, you're at risk of being attacked by hostile Indians. And what also, I'm saying is the Westerns should have fewer Indian attacks and more just kids who are just yakking just in the stagecoach. Yeah, like that's yeah. that's my dream. It's like a John Waters Western. The thing that's funny about travel by horse long distance is that traveling by horse is not really any faster than walking. Because, because the horse has to. All the horse is doing is walking. And when you walk and a horse walks, you know, it's not like the horse takes off. Horses can gallop faster, but that's not how you cross America. Right. Not at distance. Like, I think at distance, humans are faster than other mammals. Right. Just because we have the stamina to avoid predators and they don't. You know, a horse can gallop for a while, but then it's got to rest and get watered. And rest or lay down and die, as they so often did. Probably. You, you probably don't want that unless you have a fresh horse waiting. Right. Oh, no, horses are worth money. And we're even then. Well, you just don't want to be stranded because you ran your horse too hard. Well, well the, event, the advantage dies. of a horse or an ox is that it can pull a cart. Mm. But if you were a barfy little kid, I think you'd, your parents would just say, get out and walk. Unless you were a little baby. Sure. They'd make you walk. And I think you see on these wagon train, these, uh, these epic murals that are painted in the state houses of Western states. WPA murals with lots of covered wagons. Yeah, there are a lot of covered wagons and people just walking along because that's what, uh, that was probably the easier way to go about it. Well, my ancestors were, were not the 1% that had covered wagons. That's you know? right. We, we walked, we Mormons. You um, did. You know, we're early fitness buffs, mm -hmm. kind of that, that kind of lean Osmondy physique <laughs> that comes from walking across the West because we didn't have oxen and horses and whatnot. Right. You were kind of chased out of Illinois and then walked to Utah. Yeah, you know, which is not what you want. Like if you get today, you get in trouble in Illinois. I do not recommend walking to Utah because there's Rocky Mountains in the way. Yeah, well, you know, or, or half of the Rockies. You should try to get a parent to wire you money and uh, take, a, yeah. take, a, take a train to Milwaukee. <laughs> take a train, precisely. But at the time, there were no trains from Illinois to Salt Lake City. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. So it was a massive project to build these railroads into the American West. Ex insanely expensive, I assume. I can't even imagine it. Insanely expensive and something that was understood to be in the national interest, but that was being undertaken by private companies. Because that's the American way. Because that's the American way. And this was, um, now we're during a period uh, in the Civil War where uh, railroads are really important to the way the war is being conducted. 
and it's now even more so, understood that railroads are the future of the country. I'm, I'm thinking of Sherman ra- wrapping up the rails, wrecking the rails wherever he went, tying them in knots called Sherman's, what do they call them? Sherman's neckties and hang, sure, yeah. hanging them on trees. Yeah. Owned. Well, and I mean, it's the theme of the song by the band, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. Is that a song about uh, railroad ties? Well, it, it references it references the railroads. Um, I just remember that the people were singing. Is that what? It's not the chorus. Yeah, the, the people are singing, singing na 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 na. Well, why are they singing na 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 na, Levon? Like na 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 na. If they're tearing down railroads, people shouldn't be singing. Uh, they should be no, saying, "Hey, hey, leave the railroad alone." <laughs> we have no uh, way to know why people ever sing na 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 na. Also, that's what Paul McCartney sang to Julian Lennon. Unclear why. It's it's in an awkward social situation. You don't know what to see. Right. You know, you see uh, Sherman's March. You see them tearing up railroads. Like, or, nah, or you nah, see nah, your friend nah, nah, nah. Uh, doing heroin and his son looks sad. You don't know what to say. Nah, nah, so you nah, say, nah, 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 nah. That's right. And then you can say, hey, hey, goodbye. Hey, hey. <laughs> Kiss him goodbye. Um, so we have a new act. And this is in 1862. And this is during uh, President Lincoln's term of office. A new act called the Pacific Railroad Act which attempted to fund the construction of a transcontinental railroad by granting the railroads themselves, in this case, the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific Railroads, Mm -hmm. land along the route of the railroad, which... That they would need to build the railroad on, or...? That they would need to build the railroad on, but then adjacent land... Oh, they get a little bonus. They get quite a big bonus. Adjacent land that they then could sell to fund the construction of the railroad. So this really is the American way. Like we want private companies to do that because we believe in that kind of grit, but also we're going to give them huge government kickbacks. Huge government kickbacks. Uh, and To and incentivize them. Definitely huge government kickbacks, it seems today. But at the time in 1862, this land was not regarded as especially valuable and in many mm. cases regarded as not worth anything. Really? There was no idea that if you give somebody 36 square miles in Nebraska, it's, it's just a white elephant gift, basically? Yeah, it's not close to anything. There's not a railroad there yet. Mm. And you are still, again, in danger of attack from Indians. And a lot of the land seemed hardly farmable. Uh, the land grants did not include the mineral rights. Oh. And in the case of, uh, well, from the railroad's perspective... It turned out nobody wanted to buy the land until the railroad got there. Catch-22. And most people thought that this attempt to build a transcontinental railroad was an impossibility. It was something that was just like a pipe dream. It was uh, such an enormous undertaking across a barely understood West that there was a lot of, I mean, I, I think the pundits of the time were like, ha ha, sure you're going to build a railroad to San Francisco. And they probably weren't wrong. I mean, they, they did turn out to be wrong. Spoilers for the right. future. Like they did, <laughs> they did build the railroad, mm-hmm. connected in, in Utah, actually. But it's not crazy to think that this was not something a company could do. I remember reading about the early uh, underground lines in London. Um, once the first line opened, immediately every company started building its own line. And they were private companies right. raising their own money and each building a new line, which is kind of why the London tube map looks like it does today. But they all went under. Like a few years later, they all had gone under. Seven of the had gone under and they needed some American millionaire to bail them out. 
So it's it's not crazy to think that this is just too much for a private company to do. Yeah, there was not an understanding that there was like the the mineral rights and the timber rights and the water rights and the grazing rights. And then fast forward uh, 50 years, the oil rights mm -hmm. uh, would be worth so much money. It was felt that that land was just prairie covered with buffalo, hostile Indians, and rock that didn't really, it didn't even function as grazing land. When you say checkerboarding, are you saying they gave alternating plots well, to, so, the, to the railroads? Or? So, okay, the way the railroad land grants worked is if you take these 36 square mile checkerboards and you divide one of those six by six squares into one mile square section. Which is what they would do. Often it'd be townships divided into sections. Right. And yeah, so a township is the 36 square yeah. mile section, and then a section is a one mile square. So a township is composed of 36 sections. Correct. I can still picture this. This is and, not like the four dimensional shape episodes yet. Right. Uh, and so as the railroad was being built, there was a 10 mile border on either side of what the plot of the line was going to be. And within that 10 mile section, is it 10 miles on each side? 10 miles on each so side of the road. it's a 20-mile swath through the West. Right. Every odd-numbered square, because these squares were given numbers, you know, odd to even, and from Washington, D.C., you could basically identify each one of these one-mile square quadrants by its number all the way across the West. It was a great system of organization. Each odd-numbered square that the railroad touched belonged to the railroad within that 10-mile swath. So every odd-numbered square was given as a grant to the railroad to construct itself. Mm -hmm. And every even-numbered square was retained by the federal government. And, as, they, and so they really did alternate like the black and red squares on a checkerboard. That's right. Um, so within this checkerboard system, the, the, the presumption was that the railroads would be able to sell this land or, or exploit this land in order to pay for the construction of the railroad, but it didn't work that way. Nobody wanted the land. Too remote. Too remote, unclear what the value was. And can I just say how incredibly crazy it seems that they're just giving every other plot? I mean, it's like the least efficient thing you could do if you wanted to do something with the land. You know, if you wanted to do something with land, you would want a clump of it. And instead you've created these little boxes that only meet at corners. So it's, you know, it's not really clear. Your land doesn't even border your other land. Right. Although a, a square mile is quite a bit of land if you're just a single sort of farmer or investor. Sure. It would be extremely hard to farm a square mile with 1862 technology. Mm. But uh, the railroads did not see this as a financial advantage and no one thought that this land grant process was uh, much of a boon. It was still a boondoggle. So it's not even a corporate kickback. It's a corporate kickback that the corporation doesn't even really want doesn't that much. He doesn't want and can't exploit. Mm -hmm. uh, and the railroads were not like broadly owned by thousands of stockholders. They were still owned by a very small group of people who were trying to profit from this. Maybe one large man with mutton chops and a, and a pocket watch? Yeah, that's a right. Vest. This is Well, this is pre-JP like, uh, pre oh, yeah. Morgan we, we era. Don't, we don't have the railroad robber barons yet. No, there are still top hats involved mm. in how they're costumed. <laughs> still top hats. So in 1864, now during the height of the war, the railroads were further incentivized 
by the issuance of bonds, government bonds, cash money that was guaranteed by the land. And, and these are the other sections, the non-railroad sections? No, these are still oh, these... Uh, guaranteed by the, by the sections that they own. The railroad is issuing these bonds. No, the government is giving them the money, the cash money to construct the railroad. I see. Against the value of the land that they've already given the railroad. And, the, and they also grant the owners, the future owners of the land, the mineral rights, which becomes very key later on when it's discovered that there are a lot of minerals and oil and natural gas in the American West. Um, in addition to that, the railroads are given construction costs for the construction of the track and different construction costs apportioned out in 40-mile sections, depending on whether you're building track on flatland, hilly land, or mountainous land. The amount goes up uh, for, for rough terrain. Yeah, it cost $16,000 in 1860s money to build a mile of railroad across flatland. It cost $32,000 to build it across hilly land. And I'm sure it was hilariously decided what what constituted hilly land. There's probably some very, <laughs> very detailed description of the angle of the hills and the height differences. Well, and it was, and the government had stipulations about how steep the grade could be. They were very specific about how they wanted this railroad built. They're like, you know, they're city inspectors. You've got to build this to code. That's right. And it was as much as 48000 1860s dollars per mile for railroad through mountainous terrain. Because you got a dynamite and... That's right. And build trestles and so mm -hmm. forth. So, and this obviously benefited the state of Utah. This was a big cash infusion as they drove that golden spike. All the mountain people high-fiving about their terrible, unlivable states. And in 1864, that checkerboard land grant was extended to 20 miles on either side of the track. So the railroads controlled all the odd-numbered squares that fell within that 20-mile border along the route of the track from one end of the country to the other. I think the, I've read that the idea is that they thought they would, the government would get better workmanship in this way because, you know, the railroad would have reason to not want shoddy track. Right. If, if it was going to own the future of the land there around, they were incentivized now. And, and people did start to, as the railroad moved west, they started to see, sure, if you're going to build a town along this railroad, if it succeeds in its quest... It's just like the interstate highways are wonderful places to build Denny's and Sherry's and Texaco stations. Although, do they still build Texaco stations? I guess they're all Chevron now, right? And Shell. Is that true? BP. I don't even know if there is a Texaco anymore. I'm just sad they don't have the spinning 76 balls. Yeah, the 76 of, balls. Of my childhood. Or, or uh, you know, SO, you put a tiger in your tank. And all the other cities died that don't get Perkins's. Yeah, uh, or or the Perkins out by the highway steals all the customers from like Joe's Diner that's in the little town along Highway 40. Oh, poor Joe drinking himself into an early grave now. Sure, so Joe's Diner and that little town dries up and goes away. Even though there isn't really a town along the freeway, it's just, it's just a, a rest stop. An IHOP and a Arby's. So this apportionment of the land to the railroad still wasn't really seen as much of a certainly not like a rich delivery of free money to the construction of the railroad because it's so darn expensive to build this path across the states. At what point did people realize that the, had the government in fact given away the store? 
Well, no, and, and in a couple of ways. Like, um, for instance, James J. Hill of the Northern Pacific Railroad ended up selling 900,000 acres of his land grants to the warehouser company ah, that ended up timber. Uh, that's right. That ended up utilizing that land for timber and warehouser became one of the largest landholders in the West. Uh, I think they own something like 13 million uh, acres of timberlands in the U S and that all came from purchasing that land from basically railroad land at probably garage sale prices. Cause the railroad didn't want it. 50 cents an acre. <laughs> it was just, it was just surplus land that, that James J. Hill wasn't going to do anything. So much land sitting around. Well, to this day, you can look at the map, you know, aerial photogrammetry of the Pacific Northwest and you can see a checkerboard of what has been, I hope I'm not cutting to the chase here. You can yep. see the checkerboard of what has been lumbered. Is that a verb? Uh, logged. Logged. Tim Timbered. Timbered? Because it's a guy saying timber. Let's say logged. Uh, and 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 what has not. So, you know, from the air even, you can see what looks like these Bende dots of a Liechtenstein painting. Right. And when you get close, you see that it's essentially Minecraft. It's uh, a square green and a square and not green and a square green and a square not green. And that created a lot of problems. I mean, as you can imagine, it created a lot of problems from the preservationist standpoint. Sure. Ecologically, you need animals that can migrate across infinitely small geometric points. Right. Because uh, that's where the forest now meets. Little point where there are just two trees on either side and, and all, the, all the little critters, the uh, If that little marmot sets owls. one foot on the wrong <laughs> side of the border, it's going to be a hunter or it's deforestation or, you know, a predator swooping down. And there, there were... Uh, accommodations given to settlers uh, if they planted trees on their land. Like there was a lot of uh, maybe not ecological mindedness at the time, but certainly there were ideas about how you would improve your land if you were granted land or if you bought land as part of this land grant system. I assume the proto-ecology was very based on what was nicer for you, the what settler. What was nicer for you, know, you? Like, what if there was a windbreak of poplars here or... What could you plant that you could later harvest? <laughs> uh, the whole windbreak idea didn't happen until uh, after the Dust Bowl. Oh, really? Nobody invented that until the 20th century? No, that's part of why the Dust Bowl happened, because people were turning prairie into farmland and... And not planting trees. And not planting trees. And so when the wind kicked up and you didn't have a lot of water that year, and your soil turned to dust, there wasn't anything to stop it. And that's why you had these enormous dust storms that went across the prairies. And the and it was then understood that you needed to plant trees to make windbreaks to, to kind of hold that soil in place. I'm going to think that every time I drive by one of those lines of fast-growing larches or poplars or whatever they are. Yeah, that was something that was learned the hard way. I guess we now know, don't base your country on any business idea that relies on the wind never blowing. <laughs> or... I mean, crazily, uh, the idea then was that when that part of the West was really settled and cultivated, it was during a historic wet period. Oh, right. So it was believed that, of course, everyone believes when it rains, that means it's always going to rain. And then there was a, a historic drought and no one could figure out what had befallen them. And that's what created... The Dust Bowl, which is a different episode of Omnibus. See volume 4D. <laughs> Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. 
Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com start. Um, also, the land-grant system is responsible for land-grant colleges. Uh, during this period, there was an understanding that we needed to fund universities in the States and originally like agricultural colleges that were going to study how to take advantage of the land. And so states were granted land grants that they could sell or utilize to build colleges. Is this away from the railroad? This is apart from the railroad granting, or is this of those parcels? This is apart from it. I see. And they were granted like non-adjacent land to build their... What a terrible way to design a campus. Okay, walk over to the uh, humanities building, then walk through a mile of uh, <laughs> sorghum fields, and you'll get to the stadium. At the time, I don't think anyone conceived of a college campus that would be greater than one square <laughs> mile. But the idea was that you would sell this land, rather, or sell the land or sell the timber on the land in order to fund your college. And every state got a land grant, uh, or land grants in order to build these colleges. Iowa State was the first land-grant college. Later on, like East Coast states got land grants. Oh, this was the thing about land grants. The land didn't actually have to be in the state Wait, that what? was granted the land grant. Like so, if, if Vermont has no territory left, they just get land in uh, Minnesota or something? Well, yeah. In fact, Cornell University, they were allowed to pick their own land, and they picked it I think in Wisconsin. Now that's a real twist because I thought Cornell was in upstate New York. Cornell is in upstate New York, but it was funded by this land that they chose in a different state and they chose it very well. It was the resources there were very profitable to them and Cornell became uh, a pretty rich school as a result of that. I see. So the land grant is not just about having a place for the campus. No. It's uh, funding the construction and the, of the institution. And these institutions, some of them were uh, pre-existing for 100 years. Rutgers University, which was founded in the late 18th century. Sounds like a private college, but no, it's the State University it's of State New Jersey. State University of New Jersey. It still is a land-grant college. Um, Yale actually was funded by land grants for a time. Finally, some money for Yale. <laughs> I was a little worried... That they were getting a little thin. But later on, there were protests against Yale being considered a land-grant college, and they lost that status. Was it for that reason? Because they already yeah. had the prestige and endowment of a... Yeah, it was considered like, come on, this is an insult to us all. Are any of these institutions still connected to their Western uh, uh, money-producing uh, acreage? They, they are. In fact, Rutgers being a prime example, it's the oldest college that uh, is still like a land-grant college. But they, they didn't sell the, all the land. Apparently, they still own and operate and lease the land. Like, 
you can can you take a semester off and go uh, go pick berries on and go Rutgers s- farm yes, skateboard on uh, Rutgers half pipe. I'm <laughs> I'm not uh, I'm not 100 sure, but there are still colleges that profit from their connection to that land, and the land grant colleges. Um, this was how the historically black colleges and universities were initially funded. So Howard University was, for instance, was a land grant mm-hmm. college. Now, weirdly, since the 60s, there are sea grant colleges, <laughs> which are granted the right to exploit certain portions of the ocean and sea bottom. Uh, but not fishing rights necessarily. What, what would they be doing? Sea grant colleges are supposed to be doing aquatic research. So it's unclear to me whether they are simultaneously like polluting and exploiting <laughs> their fisheries. But I, I seriously doubt that they're building oil rigs. It sounds like a code for like just, you know, funding your water polo team or whatever. Yeah, we got a lot of aquatic research aquatic going research. on. Well, you know, I mean, when I was in high school, like there were an awful lot of people, mostly girls, who wanted to go to college to become marine biologists. Ah. I don't know why that was so popular, uh, it must be some kind of flipper after effect, you know, uh, discovering America first discovering dolphins being cute. I think it's a save the whales kind of a thing. Interesting. 86 is when Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock saved the whales. Mm. It was kind of a, a microcosm of the whole conservation movement was how much do you love aquatic mammals? It was also, yeah, during a time of where SeaWorld was very popular. and Right. You'd go see Shamu, Shamu. and buy a stuffed Shamu. We didn't know at the time that Shamu was essentially a political prisoner. Right. Shamu's Mandela. <laughs> right. He he was being both waterboarded and checkerboarded. <laughs> he would love to be waterboarded. He was being airboarded. But now there are also space grant colleges. <laughs> what? Which are, they are not being given grants to exploit space. Good. There's nothing in space to exploit. That's well, we that's what space. they used to think about the West. <laughs> I mean, whatever the mineral rights are on, uh, on Venus, we don't know yet, right? I mean, we I haven't see. explored it. They're not getting a cubic square mile of empty space between Venus and Earth. No, they're just being given money, but in order to become colleges that specialize on space research. This happened in 1988. So space grant colleges are still a fairly recent development, but not as recent as sun grant colleges. <laughs> I, was, I was like, is it going to be time grant colleges? You get the Renaissance. Once time travel is invented, you get to go pillage to go uh, Tuscany. And, and, and uh, strangle the Borgias and, uh, and take their little sacks of filthy lucre. Can you imagine colleges choosing different times and places? Like, I'm going to want uh, the golden horde of the Mongols. I feel like we could really harvest a lot of emeralds there. Well, it's almost true. I mean, if you go to Yale Library or Harvard Library, they yeah. certainly they have did specializations, <laughs> right? I mean, how many Gutenberg Bibles do you need before you really want to go back and take that era? And I guess you'd be hurting other institutions. You know, if we actually do go back and start taking all this stuff, it'll just start to vanish from the British Museum like in a right. Back to the Future photograph. Uh, too bad, Elgin Marbles. <laughs> the University of Florida went back. <laughs> go Gators! <laughs> uh, Sun Grant Colleges are, are empowered, I guess, to study sustainable energy. But that only happened, the advent of Sun Grant Colleges only happened in 2003. So we're yet to really see uh, that flood of Sun Grant graduates like take over the sustainable energy. With, with their beautifully bronzed skin. Although, although that's probably starting to happen even now. Is, uh, it seems like this is, these are largely symbolic. 
Uh, well, nobody has divided the sun into odd and even numbers, right? No, but real cash is involved. So uh, it's it's uh, unclear where that cash is coming from. Right. The, the solar the, the asteroid is not collateral. Right. Although I have you know I have heard NASA has estimated I think that if you were to mine all the precious metals and heavy earth heavy, rare earth metals or whatever in the asteroid belt, there would be billions of dollars for every American man, woman, and child. Right. So maybe maybe we live in a time where there are a new t- we're speaking to a new time of plenty where the asteroid belt is being harvested by uh, prospector types. Th- we may be speaking to people who are living on asteroids at like asteroid mining colonies. They have no teeth. They're old. They're old old timey prospectors. Uh, you know, with uh, making sourdough bread. Well, but they've seen the sea beams glitter uh, <laughs> off the Tannhauser Gate. They've seen cans of beans glitter <laughs> off the Tannhauser Gate. <laughs> so. One of the big questions about these land grants, this checkerboard land grant, is the is the idea by present day standards that this was a huge giveaway. That's what I'm wondering. A huge giveaway of the West and all of these companies like profited uh, beyond imagination. Did Jefferson and Lincoln screw up? Did half of Mount Rushmore sell us out basically? And really, when you do the math, when you do the economic math, and I know economic math is hard for a lot of people to understand, including myself, but... Including the economists who differ on it. uh, Right. And as we all know, like, economists are, I mean, that is a fake discipline. uh, There isn't really... Economics is not really a real thing. In fact, economists don't exist. I've seen one blurry photo. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever seen an economist and a professional hockey player in the same room at the same time? But if you think of this as uh, as having happened over uh, the hundred and hundred and ten years since the of the West since right. the land grants were given, and you think about the way that that money would have performed if it were invested at that time in other comparable investments, um, the total value of all of that land and the resources derived from it gives you an in, uh, like a return on your investment that isn't really that extraordinary. You know, somewhere less than 6% return on your investment over 110 years. Per year. Nobody got rich on... I mean, a lot of people did get rich on it, but it wasn't the land and the resources on it that made the railroad barons as wealthy as they were, as much as the exploitation of the whole notion. And you could say that the... I mean, the railroads couldn't have been built otherwise. And so the profits derived from private enterprise exploiting the commonly held land, that that, I mean, certainly if you were making an argument for the nationalization of the railroads, you could say like, well, you've profited enough. Is that what you're doing here, Father Coughlin? <laughs> are you gonna? Are you telling the future to nationalize the railroads? You've made enough money off of this. We're taking it back. I mean, yeah, you you've could, had your time. You could argue that, but ultimately, like compared to the oil leases on the North Slope and what those what the oil companies paid for those leases, right? Compared to what would have happened if the federal government just held on to the oil rights of that federal land and hired oil companies to process it rather than just granting them that. I mean, they've certainly, the oil companies have made a lot more money than the railroads did. They're doing okay. The oil companies are doing okay. And that concludes checkerboarding. Entry 210.NU2653, certificate number 6798 in the omnibus. 
Uh, we hope that both Railroad and social media still exist in your era. John and I are huge fans of social media. We were for many years at Omnibus Project on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and certainly other platforms to come in the decades before the civilization collapses. Individually, we were Ken Jennings, at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick on Twitter. John was at John Roderick on Instagram. John Roderick, three syllables. It really doesn't matter. Thank you. It yeah. does matter. Uh, not if you're typing it in. Roderick. If you just type in Roderick. Without the E. You're going to meet somebody else. You're going to send emails to some other weirdo. What if What if he has a better uh, reference work for the future? Hmm. I doubt it. Be awkward. Uh, the legal standard should be likelihood of confusion. John Roderick without the E should not be allowed to record an omnibus-like project. In I my, wonder in if my he's opinion. over there like making indie rock. I'm going to have to research this. Who the heck is John Roderick? You can't spell Roderick without rock. John Roderick. Hmm. I guess that's true. You can't spell Roderick without rock. You've never, you never used that in your stage pattern? No, I guess I'm going to start doing it immediately. You can have that. Uh, once the rock is gone, all you have left is dairy. Hmm. Once the rock is gone, Moana just floats out into the ocean. We never see her again. Uh, we also had email for some reason. People could contact us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Also, we have a fan group called The Futurelings. I forgot The Futurelings. The Futurelings on Facebook. You can go on Facebook, look up The Futurelings. That's future plus lings on Facebook and become a member of their tight-knit and fast-growing community. Facebook.com slash groups slash futurelings. Uh, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, although we have no confidence that that is the case. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs> <laughs>